on April the 29th, 2011, at Westminster Abbey in London, Prince William married Catherine Middleton. The ceremony was attended by the bride and the groom's families, as well as members of the foreign royal family, uh, different royal families, foreign diplomats, and the couple's chosen personal guest, which was about 1,900 personal guests. Uh, because he was not the king and because he was not second, uh, or he was not uh, his father, um, he was able to invite those 1,900 guests. And so after the ceremony, the couple made the traditional appearance at the balcony of uh, Buckingham Palace. The buildup to the wedding and the occasion itself attracted media attention all the way around the world, um, much like his parents um, in 1981. The occasion was a public holiday in the United Kingdom. And as we zoom in and out of these pictures, I'll give you an idea of the audience that showed up for the wedding. At William's celebration, there were over 5,000 street parties. Millions lined the street to try to get a glimpse of the wedding party. This was a big deal. Uh, the ceremony was viewed uh, live by tens of millions uh, more people around the world, including 72 million live streams on YouTube alone. In the United Kingdom, television audiences peaked at 26.3 million viewers. So that was about 36.7 million people watching it live as it took place. So why in the world would I begin telling you about a royal wedding? Because weddings are a big deal. I've actually had the privilege of getting to marry some of uh, my former students throughout my years of youth ministry. And I'll confess that one of the things that I try to get all of the students who I am doing marriage counseling with is I try to get them to elope. I'm like, please do everything in your power to try to talk each other into eloping. Uh, get away, go get married, uh, and enjoy being married with each other without going through the um, stress of a wedding. And it's amazing how much uh, they talk themselves into a wedding, very expensive weddings that uh, are just a lot of stress. Uh, they actually had a, one set of parents who took a roll of $100 bills, a big fat roll like this of $100 bills. And they said, if you will elope, you can choose whatever honeymoon destination you want. You can pay this down on a car or a house, whatever you want. Just elope. Don't let us go through all of this stuff. Uh, we will give you this roll of $100 bills. However... If you do not, this goes away. We'll help pay for the wedding. It will be great. And you can enjoy the stress. About two months into wedding planning, they went to their parents and asked, can we go back to that deal? And of course, it was off the table at that point. <laughs> Weddings are special. I remember how intrigued I was at how intrigued the world was at watching these royal weddings take place. Uh, and you just remember a few years ago when Prince Harry got married uh, and how much of a big deal that was. I was too lazy to look it up, but I'm pretty sure I posted on social media 
that I was not watching the wedding events that unfolded during that time. Uh, but there's something special about a royal wedding, which is kind of what we're going to be talking about tonight. So if you do have a copy of God's Word, if you will open up to Matthew 22. We're going to look at a parable tonight. And I don't want us to miss the fact that this parable is a, actually a series of three parables that Jesus is going to speak to the Pharisees and Sadducees, some of the scribes. Jesus is coming towards the end of his life in Matthew 22. He knows that his time here on earth is coming to uh, a close as he is headed to the cross very quickly. And he's trying to do two specific things. And this is not in your notes, but one of the things that he's trying to do in this time is that he's trying to expose the religious leaders for the hypocrites that they are. And he wants them uh, and the others to know that uh, they're hypocrites. And what they uh, are doing is fake. And this is, of course, as you would expect uh, this to take place, is causing them to be very upset, which will eventually lead to Jesus' arrest and, and ultimately his execution. The other thing that he wants to do is he wants to reveal the kingdom of heaven to his people. And many times in the parables, he's pointing his people, he's pointing his followers to the Father. He's pointing them to the kingdom of heaven. And so when he uh, starts telling these parables, ultimately it's trying to tell a story. And as uh, Landon has told us about these parables, as we've looked at a few of them, just as a reminder, um, the Greek word para, parabole means to put one thing beside another. For the purpose of comparison or illustration. Or as Boyce says it, a parable is a story from real life or a real life situation from which a moral or spiritual truth is drawn. So Jesus is just coming off the triumphal entry. And just as a heads up, that's what we're going to be talking about on Sunday. So be sure and just show up for that. The crowds of people are gathered in the street. They're laying their coats in the street. Um... They're waving palm branches. They're crying out Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus will at that point go into the temple. He will turn over the money tables. He will drive people out of the temple. Uh, and when he is approached about this tirade that he is causing, they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And he answers them by giving them a question about John the Baptist. And when these religious leaders will not answer him about John the Baptist, he goes into telling these parables. We're going to look at the third parable, but just as a recap, let's, let's talk about the first two. But before that, the big idea of the message tonight. Divine judgment comes to anyone who rejects God's invitation. Divine judgment comes to anyone who rejects God's invitation but divine acceptance comes to anyone who receives God's invitation. His acceptance comes to anyone who receives his invitation. So the two parables. First of all, we have a parable of the two sons. Father is going to ask his two sons to go and work in a vineyard. He has a vineyard. He says, I need you two to go work in the vineyard. The first son says, I will not go work in the vineyard. But then afterwards, he changes his mind and he goes into the vineyard and he works. The father is going to ask the second son, I need you to go work in the vineyard. 
And the second son says, all right, yeah, I'll do it. But then he does not go. So Jesus then asks these religious leaders, which one of these sons was obedient to the father's request? And they say, well, of course, the first son. Then Jesus tells them, this is good stuff. Prostitutes and tax collectors are entering into the kingdom ahead of you. That would have ruffled a few feathers. He applies this and points them to the ministry of John the Baptist. And so this first parable is talking about the rejection of John the Baptist and his message to repent for the kingdom of God was at hand. So that's the first parable. He then switches to a second parable, the parable of the tenants. This is, there's a wealthy landowner. He purchased a vineyard and he provided everything that was needed and handed over control to some tenants to work the vineyard to grow a harvest. And so when it was harvest time, he sends his servants to the tenants to collect fruit from the vineyard. And when these tenants saw the servants coming from a ways off, they made fun of them. They persecuted them. Some of them, they even murdered. So the landowner, confused by this, he sends some more servants. They do the same. So the landowner finally comes to his senses and he says, well, you know what? This time I'm going to send my son. Surely they will listen to my son. Surely they will treat him with respect. He has authority. The tenants saw the son. They plotted on how they might kill him. It says that they threw him outside of the vineyard and there they executed him. So Jesus asked him, what should this wealthy landowner do to these tenants who killed his son? And they said, flip over to Matthew 21, verse 41. It says, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their season. You know, this one is talking about the rejection of the son. Yes, they mistreated the servants. Yes, they mistreated his messengers. But they also mistreat and murder his son. And this ultimately is pointing us to, uh, pointing us to the religious leaders rejecting Jesus himself. And Jesus, in essence, is telling them, the vineyard has been taken from you, and I'm going to give it to someone else who will produce fruit for me, for the Father. And you know, this just ruffles their feathers even more. And that brings us to the third parable, the parable that we're going to be looking at tonight. So Matthew 22, uh, I will begin reading in verse 1. It says, And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call all those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying to those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry. 
And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads, invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they had found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in and looked at his guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garments. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into utter darkness, outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these parables. I pray that you open our eyes to the truth of your word. I pray that as we look at the call of the Father, that we would make sense of this story and we would see how you are calling us in the same way. Father, I pray that uh, you would take our hearts of stone and you would give us hearts of flesh that you would open our hearts to your truth, that you would help it to make sense to us, and I pray that we would respond accordingly. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus comes to this third parable, and he will begin with, and this is your first blank, a royal invitation. Apparently this king is so proud of his son, and he says, I'm going to take care of all the wedding festivities. I'm going to take care of all the planning. All the details are going to be left up to me. He wasn't going to delegate it out. He was in charge of getting everything ready. Now, in biblical days, when you would think about a wedding invitation, if you were to get a royal wedding invitation, it would have gone out from the servants, hand-delivered, to anyone who was invited to the wedding. This would be a little bit different than your common save the date that you get in the mail when the upcoming wedding is, is to take place. Hand delivered by servants of the king and these wedding invites would have been something very special. And it was something like an announcement to say, hey, there's going to be a wedding and it's going to be for the king's son. And you need to be ready to show up when the next invitation arrives. The preparations are being made. You only need to be ready to attend. And so any day the celebration could have started. So the who's who of the area received this invitation. A royal decree would have been hand-delivered by the servants. I mean, think about what an honor it must have been to be invited to a royal wedding. The king wanted them there. And weddings at biblical times would last weeks. It would not be a one-day affair. It would last weeks. And on the day of the ceremony, the second invitation would be sent out. Also hand-delivered by these servants of the king. And to tell them, it's time for the celebration to begin. The party is starting. Come enjoy the feast. Come enjoy this party with the king for the son. And that's where Jesus picks up the story. Look at verse 3. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited 
to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Imagine if you are listening to this story. Jesus told this story to the religious leaders. And you know about royal affairs. You know how a king's summons would be taken. And yet you hear Jesus say, but they would not come. You could almost hear a gasp. Really? Somebody would not come to an invitation of the king? Who would refuse a king? I mean, honestly, that would be foolish. It would be dangerous. I mean, if this king was truly a king, who would deny him? You know, I remember teaching through Esther uh, a while back. I remember Esther wanting to go in front of the king. Now, remember, Esther was married to the king. She was the queen. And yet, she was petrified to go in front of the king because she knew if anyone went in front of the king without an invitation, they usually ended up without their head. They ended up dead. And this was only about four or 500 years before this is taking place. And that is not a parable. That is real life. So to refuse an invitation from the king, no one can really fathom that, let alone two invitations from the king. Remember, he went back out to tell them to come to this celebration. So this is the second time that they have been summoned. Then it continues with the king. He sends out a third invitation. I don't want you to miss the grace and the mercy that is extended from this king in this story. Verse 4, again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Once again, this would be unheard of. Maybe this is like the king saying, okay, I'm going to sweeten the deal. I'm going to let you know, I'm going to let you in on the menu at this celebration, right? Uh, Catherine and I are in the age where our children are the age where they get invited to a million birthday parties, right? It's almost like every week they're coming home with a birthday invitation. I'm just like, oh, another birthday invitation? Are you kidding me? I have found myself, and I'm just going to be open and honest, with no one from the church, of course. But I have said, can we be busy for that invitation? Is it, can we come up with an excuse that... We can't, sorry, we can't come to this party. However, I'm just letting you know, if you ever have a child's birthday party and you say, I'm going to have brisket and sausage, I'll be there, right? And so the king here is saying, the oxen have been butchered, the cows are prepared, we got brisket, we got ribeyes, we got filet, whatever your heart's desire it's ready. It's time to eat. It's time to feast. This isn't a small get-together with Domino's Pizza. This is a real deal, right? You must come. But then let's see what happens. Next, we have the rejection of the invitation. Verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants treated them shamefully, and killed them. 
There was a first invitation. There was a second invitation. There was a third invitation. They paid no attention. They went off, one to his farm, one over here. You know, in essence, he's saying it doesn't matter. These are country folk. These are city folk. They're both rejecting the invitation. Not once, not twice, but three times. And this is, it, there's, it's one thing to say no. It's one thing to not RSVP. It's another thing entirely to have such a lack of respect for the king that they seize his servants, that they treat them shamefully, that they kill them, to have such a lack of respect for the king. One commentary that I read said, uh, it's translated, they did not will to come. Meaning, don't bother me with these invites. I have things to do. So what type of sense are we to make of this lack um, of desire to come to the feast? This opposition to the king's invitation? It's obvious here that Jesus is setting this up. Before those listening to this story. To us reading this story today, he's setting this up. A picture of what God has done in preparing Israel for the gospel. Preparing God's people for the gospel. Many messengers had been sent to Israel year after year after year to tell them the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. Is coming. You think of all the prophets that were sent to God's people. The Messiah is coming. John the Baptist steps onto the scene. The kingdom of God is coming. Repent. The kingdom of God is coming. Invitation after invitation. And here they stand before the Messiah, God's Son Himself, and they're just not listening. They don't want to listen. They did not will to come. They've made fun of the prophets. They've arrested the prophets. They've put the prophets to death. Even though the messengers have been faithfully inviting God's people to believe in the Messiah, for the most part, they have been unwilling to listen. They're bored with the message. Even the crowd that was following, up to, that was following Jesus up to this point. In John chapter 6, I want you to remember the story where... He has a multitude. Thousands are following him. He just fed them with a miracle. And he starts a hard teaching, telling them who he is and what they must do to follow him. And they disperse. They leave. And Jesus is left and he turns to the disciples and he says, do you want to go away as well? So he's losing followers left and right. They want to see the miracles. They want to participate in the good things of what Jesus has to bring. But when it comes to truly following him, I'm out. And this has been God's people all throughout of history. And Jesus is setting, he's telling this story. Can I tell you it's really no different today? When we think about how people today have such a lack of concern for our soul. Such a lack of concern for God's invitation today. Even though we've heard about Jesus and we've seen what Jesus has done. We take these messages and we just ignore them. They're met with disinterest. Oftentimes it's met with hostility. 
It oftentimes is met with people putting God's people to death. And remember, these parables are meant to tell us a story. But it always has a deeper meaning for us to try to unfold from God's people. And then he's going to tell them how the Father is going to respond. Next, uh, the response of divine judgment from the king. Divine judgment from the king. Verse 7. The king was angry and he sent his troops and he destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Jesus had already told uh, the the religious leaders that they had turned away from him and that even the prostitutes and the tax collectors would enter into the kingdom before them. Uh, If you flip back over to Matthew 21, uh, starting in verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. As any right and good king would do, he acts justly to those who have done him wrong, who have done his servants wrong, who have rejected his servants' invitation, who have rejected his invitation. It says here in verse 7, he says, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murders and burned their city. Matthew here is prophesying exactly what would happen in Jerusalem in 70 AD. When Titus would lay seeds to Jerusalem, they would surround the city, they would level the city, and they would kill its occupants. No stone left on another. He's prophesying exactly what's going to happen in a mere, just a few years later. Jesus is telling them here, just days before his death, my father is coming for you. He's mad. You have rejected his invitation and he's angry with you. So there's divine judgment from the king. But something remarkable is about to happen. And even though the very ones who should have accepted the invitation to begin with, who should have gladly submitted to the king's call to come to this wedding feast, even though they did not, God is going to pursue others. Which leads to the response of divine grace from the king. The response of divine grace from the king. Verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. It says, but those invited were not worthy. You know, what made them unworthy? They rejected the king's invitation. That's what made them unworthy. Their worth was not found in their, who they were. Their worth was not found in their nationality. Their worth was found in their response to the invitation. Even today, God does not save those who are quote unquote worthy due to some amazing religious achievement that they have in their life, due to how good they are morally. You know, maybe they think that the scales, I I do more good than I do bad, so the scales are in my favor and God will bless me for that. That is not where their worth is found. Look at verse 9. 
Go therefore to the main roads, invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. The the king is saying, I want you to go out and I want you to invite as many people as you can. Anyone that you find, invite them. The implication here in this parable is very clear. Go tell everyone. And yes, that literally means everyone. Bring them. It's kind of ironic that the religious leaders considered themselves worthy of God's kingdom. Considered themselves worthy enough to have God's kingdom. The very ones, the very religious leaders that thought they were worthy were the exact ones that thought everyone else was unworthy for the kingdom of God. Unworthy for God's mercy. Especially those people called Gentiles. They're dirty. They do not deserve God's worth, God's mercy, God's grace. And I love this. It says, those servants went out and gathered all who they found, both bad and good. Both bad and good. This is where I find the most joy in this passage. Because, I, I, you know, I, I was started thinking about this passage. Uh, there were several passages I wanted to pick, and I landed on this one because of this section. And I thought to myself, wow, these guys wouldn't come, so God is inviting. Hmm, the next one's up. That's kind of what I first thought. Seems like, I want you to think about this, because this is where my mind initially went. Seems like God would be dishonored. The first people I invited didn't come, so now I extend this invitation to everyone else, the riffraff, those who were not, quote unquote, good enough for the first invitation. You would think that God would kind of be dishonored by this. On the contrary, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 27 and 29, that he chooses the foolish things of the, this world to shame the wise. That he chooses the weak things to shame the strong. God will be honored. That's one thing that I took from this passage the most. God is going to be honored. And guess what? The son is going to be honored as well. And this is going to cause him even more honor. And the next few things I'm going to say to you, I'm stealing straight from Charles Spurgeon. So I'm just going to give him the credit up front. He says it really good. So I'm stealing it. I'm telling you because it's good stuff. This is not in your notes. Number one, those who come to the wedding were more grateful than the first invited might have been if they had come. Those who were invited second who decided to come were more grateful than those who got invited first, even if they would have showed up. The richer, you know, maybe they ate well. Maybe everything was fine. They really had no need to go to a royal wedding. Thanks for nothing, King. We're good. I'm busy with work and life and I got things covered. We don't need it. By rejecting this invitation... It says others were invited that rejoiced even more at their chance to be a part of the feast. So 
these invited guests were more grateful than those who were invited first. Secondly, there was greater joy. Greater joy was expressed than would have been had the others come. Can you imagine if, if you try to play this off, right? That's what you do with parables. You try to play this off in your mind. To think of the joy that, and the amazement and the surprise that these invitees would have had to be invited by the king. What an honor. Everything to them would be precious. Every song that they heard, that's amazing. Every dance that they got to experience, this is so great. Every bite, the brisket, the ribeye, it's great stuff. It would be so much more joyful than those who were expected to be a part of the celebration. So they would have been more grateful. They would have been filled with more joy. And lastly, the occasion became more famous than it otherwise would have been. This is going to be something that everyone would have talked about. It wasn't just another, ah, you got invited to a party. This would have been the talk of the town for these invited guests. And this is just an amazing picture of the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. What an amazing picture. The mercy that is found in the Father. He does not exclude anyone from the gospel. The gospel is a call for all people. The good news is a call for all people. Every tribe, every tongue. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And he says this. Starting in verse 9. It says, And do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the uh, revelers, nor swindlers who inherit, will inherit the kingdom of God. If one of those things don't touch on you, then... You're probably lying, so you just put it in there wherever you need to put it in there. Remember, this is Paul talking to the church. It says, and such were some of you. Paul tells them, this was you. But we can't miss what happens next. Don't miss this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And look at this. This was the church. This is who you used to be. But it says Jesus has washed you. Jesus has made you whole. Each of them were made worthy through Jesus Christ. God does not accept us into his kingdom because we look a certain way or because we dress a certain way. Because we've reached some spiritual peak and, and we read our Bible. We read the New Testament in a year. That's not what grants us access to God. He accepts us because of his great mercy and his great love through what Jesus has accomplished on the cross for you and for me. You know, can I just say that we can rest in the fact that God has made every preparation for his house to be full. In this, in this story and in real life, he has done exactly what he has wanted to do from the beginning of time this was his will. We know this because of what Jesus says in John chapter 10. And starting in verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. 
Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Hmm, wonder who that's talking about. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. This is our picture of divine grace. This is the divine grace that the Father gives to us. So last point. Let's consider these royal garments. I told you that you don't need anything. Uh, No clothing is going to get you in, but... Sounds like from this parable, you do need some clothes to get in. Let's see what we're talking about here. One thing you can be certain of in this day and age, when there was a royal wedding, the king would provide guests, invited guests, with the proper attire. So if you were invited to a wedding, they were like, okay, you're invited, here's your invitation, and here is your royal attire that you are to wear to the celebration. Um, So to think that someone would slip into this feast, uh, they would be uh, noticed if they were not dressed in the proper attire. Let's look at verse 11. But when the king came in to look at his guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The wedding hall is full. And the king looks out at his wedding party and the celebration's going well. And something looks off. He spots something off. He sees someone who is not properly dressed to be there. And the king asks a question, friend. How did you get in here without a wedding garment? And look what the, it says, the man says. or Let's look at what the man says. It says he was speechless. He can't say a word. He has no excuse for why he's not dressed in the proper attire. Or possibly the excuses that he had come up with as he snuck into the wedding completely vanished in the presence of the king. He failed to put on what the king provided for the feast. And see, the proper clothing here is the righteousness of Jesus. It's what Christ has done. Unless you are clothed in what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection, you will not have a part in the kingdom of God. No excuse will work. You know, we've heard the scripture where it says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? And you do all of these things for you. And he will say, depart. I never knew you. Some may claim to be Christians. They say, hey, God, you know, I walked an aisle at Emmanuel Baptist. I got dunked up in the baptistry. I'm good. Some may claim that they want to be a Christian, but maybe they want to be a Christian on their own terms, on their own merit, on how they want to live their life. But in... When we use those types of quote-unquote excuses, maybe offering their goodness, 
their moral goodness as proof that they belonged at the feast. God says, bind them up. Take them out of the feast. They don't belong here. Jesus says this, John chapter 10. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So it's only through the righteousness of Jesus who has clothed us through his death on the cross, through his life of perfect obedience to the Father, through his resurrection and conquering over death. That is what we have to put on. We put to, he puts to death our sin. He clothes us in his righteousness. And that is what we're talking about here when we look at these royal garments. And then Jesus ends the parable with a striking statement. For many are called, but few are chosen. You know, this verse causes a lot of people a headache um, when they think about the doctrine of election. This causes a lot of people uh, a lot of anxiety. In essence, it says that many people receive the outward call of the gospel, uh, but not everyone hear it, hears it inwardly. They hear the outward call, but they don't hear it inwardly. Paul wrote in Matthew, I mean, excuse me, Romans chapter 8, verse 30. He says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I want you to also recall, as we've heard about, the parable of the, so of the soils. Many may hear the gospel. Some make a false profession of faith. Maybe the seed falls on the rocks and it sprouts up quickly, but then it quickly dies. Maybe some is among the thorns and it gets choked, off, choked out by the cares of this world. It's choked out. Some lands on good soil. And you know, we try to put that line way over on the left, but in essence, it's really only the good soil that have salvation, that put on the true righteousness of God. And so recall the soils and remember what we talked about there. God is calling people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. He calls them outwardly, but to some, he gives that call inwardly. He changes our hearts so that we can hear the gospel message and we can respond uh, in the proper way. The sad part is none of us can change our hearts on our own. We can't change our own hearts. We can't change our hearts uh, to say yes to Jesus. Only the Holy Spirit of God can do that inside of us. He makes the unwilling willing. He makes those who don't care, care a lot. You can see it so much in a salvation of someone and how it changes their life almost overnight. How does it? Because God has determined that his son will be honored. And whom the father has given to the son they will accept the Son with joy. So my question to you is, have you been invited by the Father? Have you said yes to the Son? I tell you, if you have never said yes to Jesus, uh, today is the day. It says right here in the passage, for many are called. It says, but very few are chosen. Very few are chosen. Ultimately, uh, this is kind of where I ended on this Nothing is going to dishonor God. 
Those who do not believe in God, they can despise him all they want. They can dishonor him all they want. They can kill his people all they want. They can reject the gospel all they want. But can I just give you uh, a word of advice that they don't get the last word in this story? They don't get the last word. Their hatred will be overcome by God's good. And their hatred will be overcome by the praise of the redeemed that we will hear the joyful noise of the Lord. The son will be honored on his wedding day. So what do we do with this? My question to you tonight is, are you wearing the righteousness of Jesus? Not have you walked an aisle, not have you been baptized. Have you truly accepted the invitation of God the father when he says, follow my son? When he says, accept what he's accomplished on the cross. This parable was meant to point people to God, uh, to what God had prepared for the son, right? Ultimately for the wedding feast of the lamb. So if everyone would flip over to Revelation 19, we're going to end by reading in Revelation 19 about the wedding feast of the lamb. Revelation 19, we're going to start reading in verse 6. And then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For that white, for fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So are you wearing that righteousness of Jesus? That is the question that you must ask for yourself today. If not, I hope that you will hear the call and from God, and you will accept that invitation. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray this evening.